Welcome to Once Upon a Conversation, where we get personal and we get practical on how to have the important conversations in our lives. I'm Deborah Graham, a conflict resolution specialist and mediator, and I'm your host. Let's get started and let's get talking. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for joining me today as a guest on Once Upon a Conversation, a show where we talk about talking. So thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you for inviting me, Deborah. Um, I've had an opportunity to think about conversations uh, since your invite and um, put aside my first, oh, no, really? (laughs) Talk about this (laughs) to being ready to talk about it. Thought it might be helpful to just uh, introduce you a little bit. You, I've known you in your role as a leader in the collaborative family law community and the mediation community. You authored one of the early and important uh, books on collaborative practice. And I know that uh, you've been doing a lot of leadership roles in various parts of the conflict resolution communities. Is that sort of a decent summary of what you've been up to? Or is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yes, I think that I think that's a decent summary. Um, I'm also a parent of a blended family, five kids in the blended family and nine grandkids. Oh, no, I think we had 10 grand. Anyway, lots of grandkids. (laughs) (laughs) Once you can't count them, you know, you have a lot of them. That's right. That's right. Uh, Love being out of doors. Out of doors in nature is my go-to happy place. Well, and I'll say one more thing since we're talking about conversations. My preferred, like my top of the pile way of communicating is through writing. Okay, and writing gives me a chance to think and try to polish a little bit and go back, which is a facility I don't have with conversation. I tend to be an introvert. And so writing is, is my happy place for, for trying to get my thoughts across. Of course, that involves somebody reading too. So, you know, um, Nancy, I actually think that's really interesting. And we're, we're kindred spirits to some extent in that I am an avid journaler and writer. And it's where I kind of come back to myself, where I figure out what I'm thinking and feeling and where I get grounded And I've started to, when I started this podcast, I thought about conversations as oral communication. And as I've started talking to people and thinking more and more, I'm expanding that definition that really conversations are, have many different forms and writing is as important a part of our conversation bandwidth, I think, as speaking. You know, we yeah, could have that's... done this podcast in a Q&A, for example, and I could have sent you questions and you could have answered and then I could have responded with more questions and it could have been a little bit of a back and forth written dialogue, which is also a conversation. It is. It is. And actually, I edit the collaborative review, the IACP journal, and um, occasionally I'll set up articles to be done in that way, especially if people kind of feel stuck in terms of what they want to say. I, it's a it's a really nice way to get your thoughts out and yeah so I think that's I think that's an interesting idea 
Um, so. I also, as I was thinking about this, I thought a lot about my relationship to speech. When I was little, I was painfully shy. Uh, changed schools in the middle of grade one. I can remember in grade two, raising my hand in the classroom. And then when the teacher called on me, going up and whispering in her ear. And, you know, as I thought about those experiences, I went, oh, yes. And grade two is when I started going to speech therapy, which was like a uh, <laughs> hated speech therapy, um, which I went to for kind of through grade five. And then as you just talked about uh, written communication, it popped into my head that also when I was in grade two, I wrote a story and I don't, we used to have these pieces of paper with a big square on the top where you wrote the picture and then lines underneath where you wrote Oh, I remember story. those. Yeah. Okay. So my story was about an aquarium. We lived on the beach in Malibu. We were not rich at all. It was a rundown triplex, but it was right on the beach. And um, my dad made a saltwater aquarium in the house for us. And so we'd bring up things from the beach and put them in this aquarium. So I wrote this story about our aquarium and about the octopus who lived in a bone and reached his little arm out to get a clam and pull it up for his door and drew my picture and <laughs> was sent to the principal's office. The only time I think I was ever sent to the principal's office to read my story to the principal. But as we talk about kind of language and talking and conversation and written conversations, that just kind of pops up into my head in terms of how painfully shy I was to be in the front of a group and yet being able to write story I embraced and deeply embraced it and I kind of think back to that time probably being the beginning of my deeply embracing the written word that I love um I love all of those stories and I love the uh, having the courage to raise your hand and the desire to share something and be part of the community of your classroom, to be part of the conversation and the vulnerability to then walk up and whisper to the teacher. I'm sure that's not what every other kid in the classroom <laughs> is doing, right? No, and I, I really like that reframe of courage. I always kind of think, oh, <laughs> that was kind of dumb. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you for that reframe. And I I see what a journey I didn't know about you as a shy child because I've met you as an adult. And I've, I see you stepping into leadership roles. I mean, you were president of the IACP standing up at the podium in front of a room full of 600 people at some of those conferences and what a journey you've been on from whispering in the teacher's ear to standing at a microphone at a podium on a stage in front of 600 of your peers and the written word when I would do that I would write and revise and revise. I did a BFA in creative writing and poetry was my major genre. So I had to kind of get used to standing up in front of people and reading poetry out loud, which is a pretty vulnerable, for me, very, very vulnerable feeling. And so as long as I have the written word, it's way easier, but definitely the written word piece it opens up those vulnerable places, but gives me an opportunity to get comfortable with them. 
So I want to come back to that in a minute in terms of whether when you're preparing or knowing you're going to have a difficult conversation or a sensitive conversation, whether that's part of your process. But before I ask you about that, I'm wondering about, so what we now know about you as a child is that you were shy, that you had some speech therapy. Um, what kind of other things in your childhood or family of origin do you think were influential on how you approached or how you learned about how to approach difficult or sensitive conversations? Were there taboo topics? Was everything talked about openly? Were there things that people swept under the carpet? Or what was your sort of childhood experiences with conversations? So um, definitely taboo topics and um, I was going to say, I probably didn't even know what they were, but yeah, I, I, I got good clues along the way. Um, definitely um, conflict adverse. We were a bit, I'm going to use the word bohemian, which isn't quite the right word, but in terms of the community that I mostly grew up to, grew up in, it was a very uh, waspy, conservative community in uh, California, um, in the East Bay, um, which was where most of mostly I grew up and we were outliers. We were definitely, definitely very much outliers in that community. So, so that kind of helped me develop a sense of being able to go against the stream, but within the family unit, no con conflict was a pretty taboo. And having said that, we had some big challenges. Um, my oldest sister was um, very ill. She had encephalitis and was in coma for um, a month, not expected to live. Uh, and when she came out of her coma, she had to relearn speech, walking, et cetera, et cetera. And she recovered quickly, physically recovered quickly, but um, the judgment part of her brain had been really interfered with. So we had some really um, dramatic incidences with my oldest sister, but still, <laughs> in fact, one story was um, something she did made the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. And um, I remember going out into the driveway at 5 a.m. to get the newspaper and hide it so that my mother wouldn't see that it was on the front page. Wow, how old would you have been? Part, oh, I was um, 13, 14, 13, oh, 14. Wow. And at the dinner table, my father, who I'm sure saw the San Francisco Chronicle in other places, said, I wonder what happened to our newspaper today. And exactly, <laughs> oh, I don't know, did the newspaper not come today? And that was kind of the extent of the conversation. So on the one hand, you had this very significant, pervasive event in your family. I mean, your sister in a coma for a month and the recovery process. And at the same time, some things where you had to keep things on quiet or not speak about certain things. Yeah. How do you think that kind of impacted your... Um, relationships and early professional life because uh, by the time I got to know you you probably um, 
shifted and evolved and changed the way you approached conflict from what you learned as a child. So before you started shifting and learning a, a different way, how do you think that impacted you as a person in relationships and in your profession? So um, I actually had, if there was a very difficult conversation I had to have as an adult and for a long time into my adult years, uh, my throat would literally seize. My chest and throat would literally seize. And I could sit there and say, okay, say this sentence. And I could not actually speak. And it's interesting. And I've never talked to my brother about this, but he at my um, my sister's funeral, my older sister who you know passed away in her 60s, which was the same sister. He, my brother couldn't speak at her funeral. And my mom said to me, yeah, Bob said his throat closes up and oh he can't speak. God. So I've never spoken to him about that. <laughs> I've never had that conversation, um, but it's a conversation as we're getting ready for this. I was thinking, you know, I should talk to Bob about that. And I, for me, I mean, it was like, really um doing like somatic kind of exercises personally in order to release that and to be able to speak my voice I could speak my voice in the written word but be able to speak my voice in the like verbally out loud um so wow Nancy. yes um, so <laughs> and thank you, you know when that. I talk I have about topics right I have goosebumps yeah. and the idea that what that must have been like for you to hear your hear your brother have that same experience that you had had now when you think about hmm, maybe I should not should maybe I want to talk to my brother about that now as I reflect back does that feel like that would be a vulnerable conversation or one of ease but I think it would be an interesting conversation an interesting conversation yeah. the other thing that I found recently um, was a box of letters. So when I was 16, my family moved to Japan and it was supposed to just be for a year, but they, the rest of the family, my oldest sister didn't go, she was married. The, I came back and uh, went to, um, went back to school in California and went to university. Um, but the rest of the family stayed for like seven years. But originally it was supposed to be a year and it became a time of a time of quite disruption kind of in the family, partly because it was supposed to be a year and then it went on and on and on. My dad kind of stumbled into alcoholism. He he was brilliant and had a hard time kind of focusing on getting new jobs there, but didn't want to go back to California. We were in this little tiny Japanese village and he had gone back to California. And um, <laughs> so I came across these letters that my mom was writing to him while we were still in Japan and he was in California. And um, they were, oh, I love you so much. And um, could you please put some money in the bank account? And I don't mean to nag you, but it would be <laughs> so nice <laughs> if there was some money in the bank account. And you know, the person he was doing some contract work for a ski company there is a designer. They want to know when you're coming back and if you're coming back. And um, it would be really nice if you, so this huge, like, very, very polite, I'm not going to rock the boat here, but please, money in the bank account would be a nice thing. Wow. So politeness must have been one of those rules you learned growing up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So in terms of the 
impact on you and then the the when you started to shift and and wonder about approaching these things differently because now you've devoted the last few decades of your professional life teaching and inspiring and coaching people on having very real very conflict immersed in conflict and attempts to resolve and move through it conversations so one of the things I was thinking about you know as after you invited me to do this was that um advocating for others I could easily find my voice advocating for others advocating for myself not so much right so I just think that's such an interesting dynamic because it partly has to do with how we speak but then it also has to do with the muffling emotional layers, depending upon, well, who we're advocating for, really. You know, and I learned to advocate for others really early and kind of embrace that. But advocating for myself, not so much. That was selfish. I, I, can, I can very much relate to that. And I'm wondering, as you say it, and I haven't really thought about this before, I wonder if that's fairly common amongst uh, at least a certain subset of lawyers, you know, whether it's a subset of if it's gender based, if it's not gender based. Yeah, that's a really interesting, really interesting question. And when I started to do my um, really dive into my uh, dispute resolution training and doing a, a certificate program in conflict resolution, and we had to do role plays over and over and over again, role plays. And a lot of them, we had to kind of design, you know, conversations that we needed or thought we should have. And somebody else would play the person that we were having these conversations with. And I, I joke now, but it's, <laughs> but it's actually true. I have stacks of VH, VHS tapes in my closet with me crying my way <laughs> through as I try to have these actually pretend conversations. Right. Right. Now, did you ever uh, then go and do any of those conversations that you kind of rehearsed and practiced in your course? Did any of them become reality? I had one. It wasn't. It definitely wasn't one that I had rehearsed. Um, but while I was doing all of that training, and it stretched over probably a year that I was, my middle son came home, and he was. 19 he may have been 20 and told me that he was going to move in with his girlfriend and I just like <laughs> oh my god you're way too young to do that that was my thought and I was actually be able to put a pause button on my thought and ask some curious questions and learn so much I learned so much from him but that you know ability to put a pause on our immediate response, uh, make some space for that response flexibility, and then go to curious questions is, I mean, I think that's the biggest gift to me of everything that I've learned from, from my conflict training, is that that's kind of where our key lies. That's where, that's where our freedom lies is being able to expand that place between our immediate reaction and then go to curiosity. I'm pausing because the pause and curiosity and you connecting that to freedom 
that feels really powerful to me because in my head I was thinking um, the pause and curiosity, that's where the transformation can begin. That's where, and yes, that's also true, but it's the freedom because we're no longer reacting in unconscious patterns. We're no longer letting our history or our upbringing or our past learnings control us or dictate us. We create this moment of choice. Yeah. And then to settle oneself. So in that moment with your son, you had in that pause, you had to settle some emotions to allow you to step into curiosity. Yes. And Brene Brown, she spoke at one of the ICP, the International Collaborative um, Conferences. She was the keynote at one of them. She said, blame is emotional discharge. And I've always carried that with me, that little phrase, because it so helps me when I see the blame response start to pop up in me. And also when I see it, when I'm working in mediation, when I'm working with clients, when I'm working in four ways, when I'm, you know, in my personal relationships, when I see it come up with somebody else and our um, response to blame tends to be like, oh, you just shot this arrow at me. And we tend to go into defense if we're the one that's being blamed. But that whole piece around blame being emotional discharge, it's kind of like the little door for me to realize that the person who's blaming, which may be me, is emotionally stirred up. And to step back to kind of give some space for that emotion to settle. And to not, of course, jump in in a defensive way so that the emotion can settle is that's it's been a very powerful, very powerful one for me. I, I like the description of it as a doorway. Mm. Right? The doorway, because it's the door. There's still choice because you can choose to be aware and say, to heck with it. I'm going full on in blame mode anyway. So the doorway kind of implies... I see an alternate path here. I'm heading down the blame path. I see the door because <laughs> this little <laughs> sentence in my head reminds me I have a choice and gives me some insight into what's going on for me or the other person. Right. And then if I choose to step through that door and I almost imagine as I'm talking to you, the, the space and pause being that you know moment of reaching for the door handle and opening the door and walking through it then I can choose curiosity. And, you know, I I actually did an exercise. Um, of course you did, I would, Nancy. <laughs> I, I would say I did it for a day, but that was my intention to actually do it for a day. It didn't last very long. So this is the exercise. Okay, I'm going to watch, and I'm going to go through a day without blaming. One How day. hard can that be? One day, yes. How hard can that be? So I got up and I had my shower and had my breakfast and it was all good and got in the car to drive to the office and um, somebody had a fender bender and instead of pulling over, I mean, it was like a very, very small fender bender, instead of pulling over and exchanging their information, they stopped in the middle of a busy road during rush hour traffic. And so the traffic is all. Well, immediately, immediately, my inner voice goes, you idiots, don't you know you're supposed to pull over? 
So, you know, I think I made it maybe an hour and a half before I was really conscious of the first blame of the day uh, jumping up. I might try this exercise. I like that. A, a day of uh, a no blame day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I as I talk about it, I think it's probably really important to also watch all the times I blame myself. Because as I was just thinking about, oh, I could probably get through that now. I'd go, nah, I blame myself all the time. I was thinking as soon as you said it, I'm like a no blame, no shame day, a double yeah, whammy day. <laughs> and I say no surprise that you did an exercise because I know you're always looking for your growth edges and where and how you can keep evolving and growing as a person and as a conflict resolution specialist for lack of a better word um my words for that are changing all the time um, <laughs> what uh do you have do you have any conversations or stories you would like to share on either a conversation that you wish you had had that you didn't or a conversation that you had that you wish you hadn't had so kind of either or one that you had that you wished you'd never gotten yourself into because it didn't go well or one that you sort of regret that you didn't do well I'm going to start with conversations that I'm glad I had we can okay, absolutely start because <laughs> that's an easier place for me to start and so my dad died of stomach cancer when he was in his mid-60s and um he had gotten to the point in his life where he had really had really kind of grabbed onto his purpose and he just started a nonprofit organization which now is 30 years old uh, assisting people with disabilities to access computers to get jobs he designed some some access tools and so it was something he was incredibly passionate about. He was finishing the retirement house that he intended for him and his mom to live on the beach in uh, North Vancouver in Deep Cove. Um, and it was all handcrafted. So he was at that point where it's like he was on the launch for this next stage of his life when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So the last few weeks of his life that's so interesting now as I start to tell this because it links so closely into what we just talked about earlier we were able to have some of those really meaningful conversations and we started with poetry with me writing him a poem and him writing me a poem no. and that again opened the door for us to be able to have the, those conversations from head to toe I'm just all my hair is standing that is so beautiful and so profound and so unique how did that come to be that it started with a poem um I had written a poem about him that was published and so I kind of started by giving him that poem and oh, then wow. he wrote a poem and that's that's how it started I 
I love that. And it's the gate, the doorway. Like you said, we were just sort of talking about the doorway and that, first of all, I'm so happy for you that you had those conversations with your dad before he died, that you had that experience and those memories and that he had that opportunity for that intimate connection with you at that time in his life. So that I just have to acknowledge. And secondly, it seems to me that the the underlying theme there is really like work with our strengths, go to our strengths mm -hmm. and build from there. So the written word is where you are most confident and comfortable and there's the most ease. So as you begin these important conversations with your dad at this important and challenging moment in life, that you start in your strength zone and then build from there. And it strikes me that there's, you know, we all have different places where we might find this is our ease, our go-to spot. And right. maybe there's, I can imagine that there's some learning and some inspiration for some of the people listening uh, if they have someone in their life who's you know sort of facing a, a goodbye you know heading if they're that they could look inside and see where's my strength to begin and then see where it goes from there I think there's a real gift in your story so thank you for sharing okay so conversation I didn't have <laughs> and it wasn't that I was avoiding it so much um, so my oldest sister, and I've already talked to, about her a little bit, which is interesting that I come back to that. So she was my older sister. So I'm one of five, second oldest. And she went through this huge, difficult transition that, you know, parts of it followed her forever. Definitely sibling rivalry. So we always kind of had this sibling, growing up, sibling rivalry, not so much or not that I recognized anyway, as we became adults. Um, and I would say it had a, a good relationship. So when she died and she died suddenly of pneumonia, but she was home alone, didn't realize that she had it. <clears throat> and um, after she died, I was emptying her apartment, going through things, etc., with my husband and one of my other sisters and her ex-husband, we all went out together and spent a few days. And one of the things, she died in December. And one of the things I came across was her list of, I don't know, like resolutions for the coming year or things she wanted to accomplish for the coming year. And one of them was, Nancy will be proud of me. Oh, And I just like, oh my God. <laughs> I never told her the things that I was proud of her about. So for the next few weeks, really, as I mourned her passing, I had all these conversations with her about the things I was proud of her about. But the fact that I never had those conversations, never reached out to have those conversations, never even thought about having those didn't conversations or that that, that was something that she wanted. I didn't know that was something that was, that she longed for. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. What is one of the things 
that you are proud of your sister for? Well, certainly proud of her for recovering from something that most people would have succumbed to. Proud of uh, yeah, her, her ex-husband said to her, one of her ex-husbands said, she was the most spontaneous person I knew. So absolutely could care not a hoot <laughs> about consequences for things. <laughs> Just could go and grab. She lost uh, one of her sons tragically when he was in his early 20s. Um, and she had an incredible ability to stay connected to him after he passed. Thank you. It helps me get to know your sister a little bit through you. And uh, that helps her live on a little bit. And I think about, sometimes I struggle with the I'm proud of conversations because I sometimes wonder if the language around I'm proud of you for this can sometimes feel like sometimes I worry that does it feel condescending to say I'm proud of you for this or does it can it be received with just I'm in awe of you for this I'm impressed by this I'm proud and I hope that it can and I am thinking I'm going to leave today's conversation turning my mind to people in my life that might want to hear that from me Mm -hmm. Yes, it certainly helped me think about that more in my relationships with people that I'm close to. Yeah. To to express that more often. That might be a perfect place to wrap up today's conversation because I feel it's a lovely message and an inspiring one. I really I appreciated this and appreciated the invitation to um, give me an opportunity to think about conversations, to think about voice, uh, to think about how we free our voice in order to communicate. Beautiful wrap up. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you very much.